Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with two very special guests, Delian Asperhov, investor at Founders Fund, and Felix Ijakum, uh, founder CEO of uh, Kosh. Guys, welcome to the podcast. Felix, why don't you first define what is Akash and what inspired you to start it? Sure. Akash Systems is a San Francisco-based startup company making gear for the satellite communications industry. Um, the the world today is going through a revolution, a transformation in communications. There is a large number of people out there who are not connected to the internet. Something like three to four billion people uh, are not at all connected to the grid of information. I just came back from Europe, and um, most of the time I had 3G. You know, around here we get LTE, 4G, and it, it's taken for granted. But by and large, you get out there in the world, and most people are using 2G. And that gap between what we could have and where we are today is huge. And Satellites is aiming to try and close that information gap. And folks like us at Akash are enabling the solution for that, for that gap. Awesome. And Delian, why don't you tell the story of how you, uh, how you met Felix? Maybe we'll give our mutual friend some credit. And then, uh, and then we get into why you invested. Um, so yeah, I originally met uh, Felix uh, by accidentally emailing the wrong Sri Ramakrishnan. Uh, turns out there's two of them in San Francisco. Um, I was basically trying to email one of them that uh, briefly was basically uh, working at Coastal Ventures. And as I emailed him, uh, uh, I emailed the wrong one. He thankfully put me in touch with the correct one. But I was telling this to like a mutual friend and he was like, hey, you should actually go hang out the wrong one as well. Like He's pretty cool. And so I go hang out with him. I'm like, hey, I just started at Coastal Ventures, interested in space stuff. And he put me you know, in touch with Felix. And then lo and behold, I ended up doing the seed round at Coastal Ventures and then also doing the Series A at Founders Fund. I had both of them on the podcast. It was this Ram Krishnan episode. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. But he didn't introduce me to you, Felix. So okay. God damn it, Ram. Well, I, I will do a second <laughs> shout out to Sri Ram. Please. He is an absolutely brilliant um, investor. Um, he is... Uh, a seer, I would use that word, um, is very good at visioning and, and looking far ahead beyond where people are today. Um, he's been an immense supporter of ours at Akash. And um, yeah, I couldn't endorse him any more than I already have. Yeah, I'm an LP and is fun and he helped me prepare for this podcast. But that's enough praise <laughs> for, for, Ram, for, Ram, for one episode. Uh, Dylan, why don't you talk about what you saw in Akash that, that inspired you to, uh, to invest in? Maybe we could zoom out after that and think about how you looked at this category. Yeah, I mean, I think there's sort of like three major points around um, Akash systems that I tend to use for analyzing basically any uh, space startup, which is the first is there's a ton of space startups that you hear about that are just unfortunately just way too far out there. Commercial space is still a very nascent industry. And when somebody comes and like pitches you on like, hey, I'm going to make like the next like hotel in outer space. It's like, great. I appreciate it. I'm somebody who's like a sci-fi geek and I want that exist as well. But like giving you a couple million bucks, I like might as well just throw it down the drain because like there's just no way you're going to be able to make like near term progress. And so as you know, Felix kind of mentioned earlier, what they're developing is what powers basically a lot of these communication satellites. And these aren't things that are on like a like 10 year time horizon, like the radios that Akash systems make. There are already like billions of dollars that are being spent on them. And so let's say, you know, point one is there's a real commercial market that they can be a part of today that like already exists. We're not trying to like reinvent some market. There's no like quote unquote market risk. 
The second that I'd say is, okay, there are a lot of companies that maybe don't have market risk. They're developing like rocket engines or something like that, or they're making like a star tracker for navigation. But the second risk tends to be, well, you're just developing like a commoditized product where there's a tons of companies, you know, there's this one that I love uh, talking about, which is uh, Blue Canyon that actually like, you know, we partnered with before. They make a really cool star tracker. But like, it's not like a real like product. It's not like a massive business. And so they basically turn it into like a satellite manufacturer, but they're basically like a services business in a lot of ways. Like they have a hundred million revenue. It's a cool business, but it's basically valued at like 120 million revenue. Cause like there's no differentiation. There's no like, there's not a tons of margin because of that. And so probably part two is that like Felix is developing something that is like a highly differentiated product for basically work that he's worked on for the past almost like 15 years. He has developed a like material science, basically innovation that is extremely core to Akash systems that is very unique and like literally no one in the world is able to touch, but that also has these like massive business implications for his customers. So they're willing to pay him way more. Like typically, you know, a radio is going for, you know, hundred K they're willing to pay him 500 K and he can make a ton of margin on that. And they're only going to go to him. So he can take this, like, as I said, this commercial market that already exists and enter it with a highly differentiated, highly defensible product um, that has extreme advantages for his customers. And so he can basically take over that entire market. Um, and then part three, which I think is a part of basically any startup is like, you know, what is the total addressable market for it? Right. Um, this is an industry where, you know, as he said, people are willing to spend a lot of money to get connected online. The like current satellite radio business is already on the order of like a couple of billion a year. The moment that some of these constellations start to go up, whether it's Starlink, whether it's Bezos, whether it's OneWeb, whether maybe one day we do our own, there are going to be tons and tons of people buying radios and we're going to have the best radio on the market with nobody able to compete. Now, maybe there's some risk that one day people aren't using radios to communicate with satellites, but I'm pretty skeptical. Like we've been using radios to communicate for a long time. It's probably not changing anytime soon. So there's basically like the three components. Let's zoom out a bit, Adelian. Maybe you could start by giving a little bit of a, of a market map for how you view space in terms of like what are the different subsectors and different areas of which you've looked at investments or, or might consider making investments for the, for the journalist investor out there who doesn't know much about space, but just want, sort of wants to get the lay of the land. Yeah, I mean, I'd say there's basically like three main areas within the uh, commercial space industry, which are basically you have effectively like what I call the like satellite operators. And so this is somebody that's sending up like their own equipment into space. And their goal with this is to, you know, somehow produce some data, take some images, communicate like they're operating their own hardware up there. Um, the second part are, well, who the hell sends up the, uh, the hardware up there, i.e. the launchers. And so, you know, there's been, you know, the early success of SpaceX, you know, from then Rocket Lab being the second sort of commercial launch provider. And it appears that there's at least like sort of four or five more that within the next, you know, two years are probably going to be able to actually like have successful commercial launches. And then the third part that I put in, which is sometimes a little bit maybe under looked at or under, uh, under invested in is what I call like the components provider. So a lot of these satellites are built from not things that the company initially makes full stack themselves. Planet Labs relies on a lot of external vendors in order to be able to put together their system and be able to take photos of the earth. If you can be somebody that in that, you know, supply chain, it makes a very differentiated component. That's also one way of interacting with the ecosystem. Let's also zoom out and maybe you give a brief historical overview of how, you know, one thing we talked about before the podcast started is how this has been a big shift from public spending to, to private spending here. How do you think even from, you know, the last two decades, how has this sort of space evolved? How has venture looked at it? And then we could talk about perhaps where it's going. Yeah, I mean, a significant amount of credit to this entire shift like goes to Elon, given that he was able to, you know, take what seemed like a very like insurmountable problem. And he has single handedly like started to, you know, shift a lot of the like mindset of how the space community works. But 
I'd say the combination of like SpaceX having some early success and then Skybox actually selling for like a reasonable sort of like venture return, which is one of the like basically, you know, early basically like, you know, space entrepreneurship or space, commercial space investments that like Coastal Ventures did. And it like returned real money to the fund and other investors saw that as well. And so we're much more willing to, to like take major bets. You know, how we sort of got to that point was it's honestly starts from like literally like back in the sixties with like the, you know, the Apollo program being successful. The way that space used to work back then was everything was basically like mission based. So, uh, Apollo and the directors of it would say, Hey, we want to accomplish this particular mission. And then every, you know, private company on earth would basically go and, you know, basically try and provide those, like, you know, hit those specs and they would basically compete on price on who could hit those specs. Very shortly after like the Apollo missions, uh, all human-based space exploration basically shifted to like what is cost plus, which is how we do a lot of the like, you know, budgeting in the government today. And it significantly slowed down our ability to innovate. We continue to move, but like at a very, very glacial space. But it's interesting when you compare the human-based space exploration, which shifted all to cost plus versus at NASA, everything that's in relation to robotic exploration has always stayed mission-based. And so you can see this amazing explosion of like, we visited Titan, we visited Venus, we've like visited all these moons, we visited Pluto and like have done incredible things on the robotic side. And I think most of the reason why is we've stuck with mission focus. And so the way that any sort of robotic mission happens at NASA is NASA comes up with a spec of like, hey, we would like to send a probe to like X planetary body. And then a bunch of private corporations come in and bid on it. And there's some very interesting, like Millennium Engineering is one of the ones that I thought was like particularly interesting, uh, founded by this guy, Chris Kowiski, that like did several of these missions and has done everything from like constellations for weather data collection to like, you know, sending out probes. And so there has been some commercial activity, but it's all been really almost like consultancy engineering based that has been around these like private missions. And now that I think we're starting to do it on the like man space side, I think that's also been a little bit of the like recent explosion in commercial spaces. Cause on the man space side, there's also a ton more capital that, you know, NASA and the governments of the world are willing to spend towards versus just the robotic missions. Yeah. When you look at sort of the next decade and you look at where the white space is, where do you think they're going to be, you know, unicorn companies in this category? Um, maybe in some of the spaces you mentioned or ones we haven't yet. You know, I'll first start off with there's an incredible book that just recently got published called A Case for, a Case for Space uh, by, this by, by this guy, Robert Zurini. He originally published a book in like the early 90s, I want to say. It was called A Case for Mars. It was originally basically the book that uh, inspired Elon uh, to go after Mars. And the reason that, you know, you hear that old story of like Elon went to Russia to try and buy rockets. They wouldn't sell him rockets. And so he was like, fuck it, I'm going to create SpaceX. The reason he even went to Russia was because of Robert because he was trying to launch like one of his probes. Like Robert had this idea to basically go and like, I think it was like map out Mars. But... This book covers this in incredible detail and it's a great one, highly recommend. But there's a couple of different categories that I think he really breaks down that I like generally fundamentally agree with. The first and hopefully, you know, uh, biggest explosion will start to happen when we start to integrate, uh, basically low earth orbit based uh, manufacturing into supply chains of components. So the one that is most talked about, or is at least seems like the most likely to happen is around the manufacturing of fiber optic cables. Um, there's a very clear pre-existing market uh, on earth today for fiber optic cables. And there's a clear linear line or, uh, you know, up into the right line that uh, signify, signifies basically the price that people are willing to pay for fiber optic cable and the quality of that fiber optic cable. The main reason is with fiber optic cables, you're trying to stretch it underneath the Atlantic to like provide internet for the entire world. The higher quality the fiber optic cable, the less amplification stations you need to run when there's basically attenuation in the cable, meaning basically like the signal decreases, 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 and it gets to some point where it's too low. And you have to literally put a physical fucking station like underneath the Atlantic that basically like spikes the signal like back up. If you have a super high quality fiber optic cable, technically you shouldn't even need to run that 
that station. You should be able to have one cable start in Miami and the other one go to London, and there shouldn't be any amplification. We've already shown early proof. There's this company called um, uh, Made in Space that has uh, approved at least early signal of being able to basically manufacture uh, fiber optic cables in a very low or effectively no gravity environment because most of basically the imperfections in fiber optic cables, it's basically just melted glass. Um, and a lot of the imperfections literally just come from basically it being manufactured in a gravity field and the top being more dense with glass than like the bottom or the bottom being more dense than the top. And they're also being like small air bubbles. Turns out if you build it in a vacuum with zero gravity, you can literally build a perfect tube of glass. And so he runs through the economics of this in this book where it's like, we're actually not that far away. Like if you continue to watch the like curve of basically like the dollars it costs per kilogram to send something up into space, we're not that far away from being able to introduce that stuff into the supply chain and have it actually be affordable. There's a ton of that knock-on effects that start to happen because like the moment, okay, you start to have this particular thing, like, you know, manufacturing space, well, then it's like, okay, well, that, you know, factory that's building that occasionally needs servicing and it needs fuel and it needs, and there's all these sort of like follow-on things. But I think the first thing that starts to happen is like when manufacturing starts to happen in space because the moment you have some heavy industry there, the most difficult part of space exploration is the rocket equation. The heavier something gets on Earth that you need to launch up, the exponential amount of fuel that you need to send things up there. And so our ideal end state for humanity is not actually bringing any heavy things up and down from earth it's having the heavy things built outside of earth and like the only things that are coming up and down from the surface are just like the meat bags i.e like the people uh and so that's maybe like the early areas i think there will start to be not just fiber optic cables but other products that whether it's i think you know we've shown early signals of certain like uh you know drugs that uh, can be manufactured better in low gravity environments there's a variety of different sort of like industrial products that i think will start to utilize basically that manufacturing capacity if you had to categorize sort of like different waves of space investing, either past, present, future, like where are we right now? Oh my God. We're still in like very much the early days. I mean, there was like, you know, the pioneers that maybe tried in the nineties didn't have a ton of success. There's the, you know, two thousands and like basically like, you know, Elon and like Skybox effectively being the only successes. And now it feels like there's been a whole, feels like maybe like the, the, the first wave failed. The second wave had like at least a handful of successes. The third wave feels like it's going to manufacture at least, you know, I could bet on let's say the top 20 companies today in like the space industry, I would say that like five of them, I think are like going to become unicorns. And I think that's only going to further propel like the way that I kind of maybe uh, analyze it in a different way is right now, I think it'd be really hard for me to define my entire venture career just doing commercial space. I'd like to say that I spend maybe like 10, 15, maybe 20% of my time. I go to conferences, I talk to entrepreneurs, I talk to experts, I help, you know, Felix. But I do think that it is going to be possible by around, let's say like, you know, by 2024, 2025, I think one could very easily have like a venture career that is like a majority of the time they spent on commercial space. Right now you're like partly space. The rest is full on ICOs. Yeah. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> I mean, I said, I've joked that like, I only do the rest of the shit just to pay for the time that I get to like do the space <laughs> stuff. And then like, yeah. I really just want to do the space stuff full time. Totally. Like that'd be an amazing job. Totally. Felix, how would you be thinking about uh, space from a, from a VC perspective or, or put differently, you know, when your generalist investor friends come to you and ask what should they be looking at or any advice that, uh, that you give them as it relates to investing in the category? Two sectors come to mind that, um, and I, I borrow pages from, uh, let's say going back and looking at the, the telecom, you know, growth bubble and burst and then, and then the dot com before that. And, you know, we've had many cycles in Silicon Valley over the last 20 years. Um, I would say that tried and true strategies can revolve around investing in the picks and shovels of what will become, what everyone agrees will, will be a big, a big space, uh, pun intended. So, uh, all the folks who are supplying, uh, or making gear 
for for space. Um, and uh, I think that there there are going to be certain winners in there. You know, so if you can if you can if you can go there and, and find you know uh, critical folks in the supply chain, uh, that could be a winning strategy. I think a second is. So right now we're going through a phase now in space and new space where we're building the platform. Okay, we're building the the bed upon which uh, ultimately we're going to be delivering data and valuable services to consumers around the world, and that hasn't really come to fruition yet. I think that there are going to be some very innovative companies who will deliver uh, very very exciting value through data, whether it's in the form of Earth observation, visible. Invisible infrared. There's a need that people have for wanting information about themselves, about their lives, about the world around them, um, and we haven't we haven't touched that yet. And I think that uh, I think that's a, that's another potential wave. We were talking about waves earlier of uh, of opportunities that, that I think could be coming around the corner. And, and I don't think we may even have seen the winners. Uh, they may not have been born yet. I mean. Google was search engine number 16. They came at a time when Yahoo was already declared the winner. Um, so I think that um, it's still very much early days. One of my favorite examples to give is I think a lot of people think they're like, oh, you put a satellite up there and like, okay, it takes pictures of Earth. But like, okay, then then we're done. We're just taking a picture of Earth. What they don't realize is there are so many different use cases for having a satellite up there. So here's one that's like in some ways a niche example, but this is like a multi-billion dollar market. So for the longest time, the way that we basically did all weather collection data in the United States in order to be able to like model model weather, model model hurricanes, was basically sending up like balloons that basically had like, you know, some sensors on it that would basically collect like humidity, pressure, et cetera. But like sending up a balloon, one, it's pretty infrequent data collection. And then two, you can only basically send up those balloons over land. Like it's hard to like send ships out with like balloons on a very regular basis. And so you're not getting like that much continuous weather. And so for a very long time, our ability to like model just like the weather on Earth was pretty damn poor. In the early 90s, basically NOAA was tasked with like trying to fix this project. And so there was these early experiments that basically um, utilized the fact that we already had a series of GPS satellites. And they're like, okay, well, since the GPS satellites are already up there, what we'll do is we'll put up a satellite that it's in a much lower orbit. Like the GPS satellites are super, super high up. We're going to put a little satellite that's like in a much lower orbit. And what we'll do is we'll watch when basically one of those GPS satellites is on the horizon opposite from us. And we're going to watch that GPS satellite signal rather than hitting the earth and like going to your phone. It does also come to our satellite. It hits us. But as it comes to us, it actually basically like passes through the atmosphere on the way and actually gets somewhat refracted by the humidity, the pressure, the water, et cetera, in the atmosphere. And it turns out you can actually use that as a way to basically constantly monitor, monitor the humidity, pressure, et cetera, all over the globe because you have all these GPS satellites. You have all these little ones that are basically listening to the GPS satellites. And it's one of the most effective ways of basically collecting weather data. So we launched an early constellation in like the mid-90s. We launched a second one in like 2000. And it was an absolute game changer. Like the only reason that we're now even able to like remotely monitor like some of these hurricanes and actually be able to give even two, three-day predictions – we were not able to do that before like the, you know, early nineties. We was basically just like a complete flip of the coin hurricanes hit when we, you know, would basically just see them. Um, however, still super limited. We only have, I think like right now, eight operational satellites or something like that up there. And so there's been this interesting shift where, um, you know, I think part of the original motivation was maybe Trump slash Pence not believing in climate change, but they basically were like, we're going to slash Noah's budget by like a third or something like that. We're going to take it from 1.5 billion to like $500 million a year. So the NOAA directors were like, well, shit, we can't afford like our old school, like government space program. So, okay, well, we're just going to put out a spec of here's how much, you know, weather data that we would really like to collect. 
Lo and behold, private companies started launching that were basically focused on collecting weather data in this way, but in a much cheaper way. And so now there's like three different companies that are basically now fulfilling like NOAA specs and are now collecting data at like one one thousandth the cost of what a government made satellite could do. And so, you know, within the next couple of years, there's going to be like not just eight satellites that are collecting weather data, but like 80 or 800. And that's just like one example use case of like you can collect weather data, you can collect imaging data, you can get an infrared, you can look at like methane leaks from like a gas pipe. And like each of these requires very, very different types of equipment, different types of data communications, different types of orbits. And so I think sometimes people get too stuck or narrow in like a, what are the like potential applications for a satellite? Like I can list off hundreds and hundreds of applications and you can't just send out like some like general purpose satellite to do all these. Like each of these needs their own orbit, needs their own hardware. And a lot of these markets are like really massive markets. Like I think by 2022, there is a very likely chance that we will be able to do like 14 plus day out weather predictions that are like near perfect across the entire globe. Let me tell you, there's like a lot of people that are going to be willing to pay for that data. Like insurance companies, hedge funds, like, you know, ship companies that are navigating across the Pacific trying to avoid storms. Like that's a pretty freaking damn big market. And like, I guarantee you, you've never heard of the name of like any of these three companies. And like, they are tackling like a multi-billion dollar market. I was going to say that this is actually not such a far-fetched thing. These are real ideas that are being pushed right now by various startups. Uh, there's a company that reached out to us recently, an NGO, uh, asking us if we could provide satellites to them or services to them to help them collect data from fishermen around the world. So this NGO works with various governmental bodies around the world to make sure that fishermen, especially in the Pacific around Asia, do not collect, catch, and keep uh, endangered species. And uh, and oftentimes they do. And the way they try to monitor it is to have a camera that's constantly surveilling what the fishermen are doing and, and transmitting that data live. And there's AI and software to constantly to, to, to be able to tell when something nefarious is happening, uh, if they're actually, you know, did they catch a turtle that should they shouldn't have caught? Did they let it go? Did they keep it? And all of that is being processed real time. And and that they they and their vision thought could be possible by with a satellite. So they reached out to us to implement that as an example. We're talking about the infinite number of um, applications. I think, you know, in ways that touch people's lives, um, the potential you were talking about fiber, very expensive fiber to go across the ocean, uh, running that fiber through terrain, through the Amazon, through, you know, northern Africa uh, gets very expensive. Okay. There is the potential to crash the cost of access a hundred, a thousand times lower than where it is today. You do that, you are enabling new industries, commerce, just you're, cre- you're going to create you know, new states around the world when all of a sudden uh, the cost of access is not a barrier anymore. That's an example. Um, uh, imaging. I mean, there's almost countless uh, examples of that. Um, and even without getting close to privacy concerns, uh, but just being able to... So we got reached out to recently by a company that wants to use satellite images to enable uh, cars, uh, basically uh, assisting... Uh, your GPS travel and and uh, fl- uh, navigation on the roads. If the access were rapid and precise, uh, that could be a another layer of your navigational system for autopilot driving. So so besides just radar, but also looking ten cars ahead, five cars ahead, and giving precise right now information about what's you know what's coming down the pike. Um, so anyway, yeah. There's almost no end to the applications that are possible and real companies um, that are pursuing these these ventures. Yeah. Ten years from now, 
or a decade, two decades from now, what will be viewed as the iPhone moment in space? Has, has it already happened? What will it look like? And then similarly, what, what will need to be true for companies to be thinking about having a space strategy the way companies thought about, you know, having a mobile strategy? Uh, I think the, the iPhone moment is happening likely right now. I think a, a number of companies that are putting up the infrastructure, the, the sort of the baseline internet platform upon which many of these things will be built upon. I think that that's happening right now. Uh, and it'll, it'll take some, some form of a combination of what Elon Musk is doing, what Jeff Bezos is doing, and they're all doing things to maximize their own need, their own application. And in some cases, they're not really competing with each other. And, uh, and, and likewise with us, you know, we will be up there in some form and, and, and others, uh, that are coming, coming along today. So I think that, that right now, the, the platform is being built. And then in, in 10 years, you'll start to have a lot more of the services. Yeah. And, and talk more about what the difference is between what Musk and Bezos are doing. So I was like, I can't speak for, for the two companies. Um, um, I, 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 I have a tremendous amount of respect for both what they're doing, but the public statements show that, um, that uh, Jeff and, and, and Amazon is, is ultimately trying to maximize access, uh, and reduce costs to, to products for, for their users. So, I mean, ultimately, I think that if, if you're Amazon, you want anyone anywhere to be able to order anything and have it come to you in maybe five minutes tops, uh, regardless of where you are. And um, anything that stands in the way of that is, is cost that needs to be removed. Uh, satellites can help you do that a bit more. Uh, it's not uh, the complete solution, but it is a step in that direction. Um, and then if you're, um, if you're Jeff Bezos, if you're, if you're Elon Musk, he's talked about, you know, essentially transferring the internet to, to the sky. Um, so, uh, so, so, you know, making access ubiquitous is, is, a, is a key objective of some of their public statements. Yeah. It's funny. I think I would define like the iPhone moment like a little bit maybe differently. I can't actually decide. I maybe have like a little bit of like two answers to it. The first, which is um, the moment I think that there is like a human that is in orbit for a commercial reason, I think is like to me like the iPhone or like breakthrough moment. Because the moment there's like a commercial reason for somebody to be up there, there are so many then trickle down effects that start to happen of like that person needs water, that person needs rides back up and down, that person needs fuel, that person needs air, that person needs materials. There are so many different things that I think will start to explode the moment that it becomes like economical and there makes sense for there to be a reason for somebody to be up there uh, for some sort of commercial application. And it, there almost certainly will be. I mean, like, we're nowhere near being able to do the, like, sort of fine detailed and human ingenious and, like, fine motor movements that humans do during manufacturing steps. Like, there's only so much that you can do with basically, like, automated robots. So I was trying to decide between that, which I think will have a lot of trickle-down effects, and the other one, which is something that, like, Elon has obviously already, like, you know, published videos on, but the ability to do rocket-based point-to-point transportation across the Earth, I think will be a massive game-changer for the commercial space industry. Even though it's a largely a terrestrial-based product, the problem right now with most long cost is like they're basically trying to amortize over the course of like you know spacex has done 10 launches so far this year you know planning to do like 18 or so projecting for you know hopefully double that in like the following year but they have to amortize all of their commercial or all of their like corporate costs across just those number of launches if you're able to make it economical for people to do point-to-point transports and make it so that it costs roughly the you know same as like a first class flight which like all the physics and everything and like the amount of fuel that it should take should support that 
massive game changers. Now all of a sudden you're saying, okay, rather than like SpaceX doing like, you know, 10 flights a year or something like that, it's hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of flights. And the moment that that like starts to become even remotely economical, it's just going to crater the cost, right? Because now all of a sudden they have incentive to compete against airlines. And like the moment that you're competing against like airlines and trying to continue to lower your costs, it's just going to make it so that like that first flight makes it somewhat economical. And then, oh my God, it's just going to explode after that. I remember, uh, the moment when I could go to Google for the first time and see like Google Earth view, like, or street view, that was like a, a, you know, a moment when you, you thought, okay, this is, this isn't sort of the future is here. I think I like what you said about, um, you know, the, when, when we have people in space, um, I think, a, a related point could be when we have people, consumers able to control, you know, a satellite in space, like have, you know, have like take a joystick and move, you know, the image that's being captured from your backyard, you know? So, um, I think if, if, if people had control over something in orbit, that could be like the, the moment when someone, you know, like an iPhone moment when, you know, something so powerful is now in the hands of your, of an ordinary person. And does companies have a space strategy? Does that analogy make any sense or not really companies having a space strategy the way they had a mobile strategy? I think eventually, yes, because uh, what space does is it makes, it democratizes information. It makes ubiquitous access. It drops the cost of access. And if you want to reach, you know, tens of billions of people rapidly, that is a great way to do so. Um, so, yes, I think that there, there will come a point in time when someone is going to provide a platform for that. And there's almost like, I mean, I think almost every company in the world would love to have more information and more data on like what is happening in the world around them. Whether again, you're a shipping company trying to like move boats across the Atlantic or hell, even if like you're open door and trying to like, you know, analyze the roofs of various houses and see how they're changing so you can watch somebody doing repairs. Like, yeah, I mean, I think at some point whether or not they're actually like operating space, but if they're partnering with some sort of space company or purchasing some amount of like space data, I think at some point it's going to be like a no brainer. Like you have to utilize that set of data. It's like not having a strategy for being on the internet. Like how would you not, you know, utilize information that's on the internet? Same thing. How would you not utilize information that's coming from space? Yeah. And how do you think about space investing different than other categories? For example, when you have to communicate deals or about the category to your partners at Founders Fund who may be unfamiliar with the category, what are the biggest differences or yeah, I mean, it, by far the biggest one is basically like timeline, right? Like I have to be able to convince them like why this is something that is actually like in the venture or scale of returns. Cause look, we are, you know, major shareholders in SpaceX and are like super happy with like how the company has performed. We have, a, you know, very large holdings in it. At the same time, like, you know, that company has been around for a very long time and isn't a particularly like liquid investment, even though it's like one of the best investments like to date. And so, um, you know, I think that's something that, you know, with so few N of companies, um, it's the biggest question that's on most investors' mind is like, look, does, does this category, does this asset class perform similar to other venture asset classes that have, you know, enterprise software now has like a lot of examples of like returning funds. Space is still relatively limited. Like Skybox is one of the few that is like, you know, return liquidity back to its investors. And so that's by far the number one question that sort of people are wondering about. And so that's why when you talked about earlier, I was like, why did I invest in a cost? The number one filter was, okay, this is a company that can like start making like real revenues, not in like 10 years, not in five years, but in like a year. Like they can start selling radios to like commercial operators like the Elons, like the Jeff Bezos's, like the Airbuses, like the Spires, like, you know, across the, across the 
exhausting, you know, gambit of like, they don't even have one type of customer. It's literally anybody that's communicating with their satellite. And it turns out that's basically everyone in space. Everybody wants to communicate with their satellite. And so I apply that number one filter. And unfortunately, like very few companies hit that filter. There's tons and tons of interesting, like satellite propulsion companies that are making satellites move around faster, but it's like, okay, well, somebody's going to need to take a bet on your new propulsion system. And then if that goes well, then in another year, two people will take the bet. And then after that, maybe five people versus like, with radios, people have used radios for a long time. Yeah. And I'm curious, where are, do you disagree with other people who focus on space? Like, what are the major disagreements within the field? Or, or if there aren't any that come to mind, what do you learn? I mean, you're, you're going out to conferences in, like, Kansas, Nebraska. Where, where are these conferences? Yeah, they're, uh, one of them's in Utah, which is convenient for me in some ways. Unfortunately, it's not in, like, Salt Lake where my parents are. It's, like, in the middle of nowhere, Logan, Utah. It is a beautiful town, but really in the middle of nowhere. Um, it's a good question. I mean, there's honestly, the thing is, like, there are so few venture investors that know anything about space. Like, I can list off basically, like, the five. It's, like, David Cohen at Bessemer. It's, like, Sven Strabend at Coastal Ventures. It's the DCV site, DCBC guys, Lux Capital, Jervinson with his new fund. I think it's called, like, Future Ventures. And then that's about it. I mean, already, hardware hardware as a category is a lot less than software, maybe by a factor of 10. And within hardware, space is even fewer uh, and he just rattled off the names of the folks who will do it. Um, and I think I think one thing that scares people off oftentimes is just the amount of capital required to go into a company uh, between you know inception and exit. Yeah. Um, it's oftentimes a lot more than in a software SaaS. One area that I find like a lot of ways that I disagree with people is they tend to be comfortable with the sort of defensibility or differentiator being just like cost of capital being the main defensibility. And that's where I see like a ton of people like investing these operating, like, you know, where they're like sending up like a satellite and like your satellite is just like a series of components, like manufactured by a ton of third party vendors. There's no real proprietary, like, component data or anything here like yeah you're gonna be able to make money and you should be able to continue to raise and like send up more satellites but like if this starts to be successful there's a lot of other people that can raise and send up like your like, your identical satellite yeah. and so that's maybe one area where i disagree where like i haven't been particularly impressed by a lot of the like up and coming let's say like satellite operators yeah i think that, i think that's probably like the the biggest the biggest difference that i've seen amongst people what do you learn at these conferences that you know i assume these other people aren't going. So what are they, when, when you're sort of taking photos with goats in Utah, what are, what are they, <laughs> just kidding. what are they missing out on? What do they not understand? For what it's worth, space? I did tweet that and I criticized the fact that there were no other Silicon Valley VCs there. Um, and then for what it's worth, there were actually two DC VC guys oh, you gave there. Up so, strategy. uh, so there were, there were technically others, but very, very, very few. One of the most interesting things is just like literally just like, you know, serving the like, you know, floor of these conferences and just seeing like, what is the up and coming research? What are people working on? Like, what are the various operators? It's such a great way of like, I think with this type of industry, and it's probably true with many different industries is like, there's, there's not any like physics constraints to anything. Like we, we could build a lunar base tomorrow. All of these constraints are just like, how can we use the like current physics that's available to us to like start to satisfy customer demand? And a lot of this customer demand is like sometimes just like these one-off deals. Like one example that I like to give is like there's this company called Astrobotic that like, you know, I met about a year and a half ago. Great entrepreneur, but like crazy business model. It was just like, I'm going to go out and build a lunar base. And I was like, I can't, like, I love you. And it looks like you're making progress, but like, I can't invest in that. Like, that's crazy. And I'm like, but like, how do you have already like $12 million in revenue? Like you haven't, you don't have a product. You haven't done anything. He's like, well, um, DHL paid me $8 million because DHL wants their logo on like the lunar base. And so they're willing to pay $8 million before we have any progress. I'm like, 
that's insane. Like, how am I, like, how do I even think of that as a venture investor? Like, I, I can't, like, are you going to be able to close more of those? Like, are there going to be more logos on your lunar base? But then, like, what's the point? Like, I guess it's marketing. And then there's like, the one who want, who's building a hotel in space. And then I have a friend who's actually putting up a university on the moon. The lunar base, though, just got awarded, like, a $30 million contract from NASA. And so some of these actually do turn into, like, kind of real projects. And, like, they're now actually going to go for a launch. They, like, have their whole plan. And they have all the funding that they now need. And so sometimes some of these companies, just, like, there are some that it's just, like, you know what? I just can't, you know, take a look at this really understand it. Because, like, you just really need to understand, like, the government contracts super well. And I'm not the guy. So there's, I think, almost, like, two categories of types of investors in sort of space companies, which are, I understand the commercial world and commercial space really well. But there is a whole world of like you know defense and government space that like i don't really touch because like you need to really understand those government relationships and what is the chance of something like that happening the dhl thing was that um was that going to be a business model to advertising like to get logos from other companies that want to stick up there they only did it for dhl and their next contract was nasa which was 30 million dollar contract but like if you had asked me a year ago like do you think this guy's gonna be able to win the 30 million dollar contract from nasa and i'm like I mean, there's like five different lunar base companies. Like, I get that his has the most money right now, but is it really the best one? But yeah, I mean, I guess props to that entrepreneur. He managed to take it from like kind of an idea to raising a couple hundred K from like, you know, random angels to then convincing DHL to give him a ton of money. And then because DHL gave him money, NASA gave him money. And so part of the skill sometimes in space is like, especially if you're on the government side is like, you kind of need to fundraise for like a wish or a dream in some ways. And so what I love going to these conferences is seeing these people and seeing them. Okay. Like, wow, I did not think there was a commercial application here, but you were somehow able to find like a source of funding. Like one web has raised, like, I don't even know, like $600 million. No more. More. One point. Three billion. I don't even know. Something like that. It's like some crazy amount of money. They've like yet to have generated revenue, right? And so a lot of going to these conferences is just watching some of these things and be like, okay, that's a lot of money. But if that starts to work, then there's tons of commercial applications. Like Akash Systems makes radios for OneWeb now. And like that could be a real customer. It's really important for me to go to it and like watch OneWeb because I'm like, okay, now that that crazy like government project or whatever got funded or some billionaire decided to spend money, what are all the commercial implications? Because now there's real customers for some of these things that like the physics works for, but there just hasn't been customers yet. Yeah. Talk more about the public-private relationship and how how that has evolved. We alluded to it and how you expect it to evolve over time. You know, governments and, and startups work together in space. And because Trump is the official entrepreneur in residence of Founders Fund, maybe you could talk, you know, from, from that perspective. I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, no. I mean, I, you know, I think we like to be uh, public about the fact that you know uh, we we are supporters of the administration, uh, or at least you know Peter is, uh, whether or not everyone at the firm is. Um, <laughs> Uh, but no, I mean, I think it's one area that actually, you know, I don't think it's been necessarily as much Trump. I mean, maybe him sort of pushing from a high level, but I think Pence has done a really remarkable job with the commercialization of space. Um, he started to push towards, and, you know, I really credit, um, one of our partners, uh, Trey Stevens is, I would say probably the most influential, uh, sort of, uh, public investor, let's say, or like a defense-based investor, uh, you know, has, uh, close ties to a lot of that community. And there is starting to be a shift across the entire government in a variety of different ways, but more accelerated in space, going back to that original analogy that I gave, which is mission-based versus spec-based. And I think SpaceX really helped sort of shift the curve. Like, it used to be that, like, the government went to ULA and was just like, we need to launch this satellite. Like, tell us how much it costs you, and we'll pay you 20% above that. And obviously, ULA is incentivized to make their launch cost, like, $1.3 billion. When SpaceX comes in and says, we can launch it for $100 million, well, like, the government, like, is obligated to, like, take a serious look. And, like, I mean, SpaceX has gone through many lawsuits to, like, get to this point, but, like... Now, the government is obligated to if somebody comes and meets your spec at a lower price. And so now a lot of the human-based exploration, a lot of these big government projects are starting to be more spec-based. And so I think there will only continue to be a trend in that direction. It's clearly already happened in like the robotic exploration. But I think that will continue to happen with some of our larger like human-based explorations. Yeah. 
when you, we think about, we were talking about the iPhone moment earlier. When you think about the future of, of, of the space startup ecosystem, will it look similar to the current app ecosystem where there are a few core pa- platforms like iOS and Android and thousands of startups developing components, applications on top of it, or will it look like something else? I, I think it will, it will eventually. So initially there needs to be a, there's going to be a plethora of, of uh, solutions out there. Uh, companies like, like us trying to advance a standard. And at some point there's going to be a shakeout. There will be a crash of some sort and many companies will fold and there'll be a few standing and the few standing will set the standards and everyone will sort of fall in line and use those standards. Um, so that, that happens in every industry, happens in every sector. It's happened for decades. And I think that this will not be any different. And uh, so that's you know, partly why you want to go early and try to have a say in how things work out. Um, so things like um, you know, what frequency bands and you know, what types of, uh, you know, I mean, already we only have a handful of, of launchers out there, you know, relatively small number. And I think it'll, it'll probably come down a bit more as well. The, the form factor of the satellites are sort of, you know, becoming standardized. Uh, so, yeah, so I, I think that there's going to be a coalescing eventually. Not right now. Right now it's still sort of free-for-all and it's a mad rush, a gold rush uh, to try and, and, and be a player and, and have a say in the way things work out. Yeah, I don't think it'll be like as if the entire ecosystem is just controlled by like, let's say two companies and tons of developers per se. But I think what you're starting to see is across every single like step of the supply chain, you're already starting to see the like hints of consolidations, like in the launcher market, like the launcher market's not that large. And like the moment that like, you know, SpaceX continues to really drop the cost in heavy launch. And like if Rocket Lab continues on the path that they are, it's going to be really hard for somebody to start a new heavy launch company or a new light launch company and like try and compete against them. Like you might be able to go, okay, I'm going to like go even lighter launch than where Rocket Lab is, like the miniature miniature launchers. But again, we don't, that's not even that big of a market today. And you're seeing this not just in like the launcher market, but you're seeing this like, you know, in the radio market, for example, like the, the company that one of, uh, you know, Felix's co-founders, uh, was a part of before, um, has, you know, significant taken over like the market share of radios and is now starting to become like the standardized component and occasionally right i do think felix is going to be able to like you know take over that market as well but the same thing is happening in solar panels in cameras in the form factors in the gpus they're starting to just be if you look at like the number of satellites that are sent up and especially on the smaller side they're starting to like there's a steady march towards consolidation and standardization of these components and i think within each of these components there's going to be like two maybe three major players that represent like 90 plus percent of like the market share effectively but it's going to be like each company is going to have like a sliver of what it takes to basically build a satellite in operation right there's going to be like the chassis there's going to be the like power units there's going to be like the supply chains there's going to be the propulsion systems and in each of those there's going to be like three major players that i think shake out and then those major players will compete against each other and continue to march things forward and once in every five to ten years some new player comes in with some massive new game-changing technology and like you know becomes one of those like top three but we're very quickly starting to see that consolidation across a variety of different steps in supply chain it's important to note that this is actually the third wave of space we actually started out with uh there was uh teledesic and iridium actually were predecessors to all the companies that we're talking about now and so um, it's interesting to see the evolution of space now and and how in where it's come from i think there's still many lives ahead um uh, easily another 10 years before we start to see this industry become sort of quote mature. Uh, there's still so much life ahead, uh, so much to do. 
uh, even as I think you know, there's a lot of talk about an economic downturn. Are we going to have a slowdown, a recession? I think that even with that, um, you'll still have a lot of activity in space. That's my my sense. Uh, just one thing we haven't talked about is the, is the demand pull for everything that we're talking about on the market side. I think that um, there's an extraordinary backbreaking demand for data. That wasn't there before, and I think that that is the justification for so much push into space. So, if you look at, you know, data being consumed today, I think we're consuming data at the order on the order of ten to the eighteen, ten to the nineteen bytes per month. Uh, if you look at the world we'd like to see, it's something like ten to the fifty, uh, thirty orders of magnitude difference, and that is what is pulling so many companies to try and do something to provide information, whether it's to consume or to do something with or to, to make things in space. I think as long as you have that demand there, uh, this industry will weather whatever recession or downturn that may come along in the next few years. Yeah, my, my maybe two points is like, you know, the, yeah, the advent of the smartphone has made it to the like these, you know, communications like platforms actually like have demand. And I think what maybe people don't appreciate is that there are significant uh, quality of life improvements that can happen on earth based off like things that we actually like, build in space is I would say maybe like point one. And then point two is we're on like the very early signals of like an exponential curve, but you're already starting to see it. Like the number of launches that are happening per year, the number of satellites that are getting sent up, the number of companies that like are achieving certain like, you know, revenue milestones is like clearly exponentially growing. And we're still in like the very early curve of the exponential curve. And like it has a very, very high to maybe potentially like unlimited upside you very rarely see markets like that. Like we are capped on the markets in some ways on earth. Like there's only so many resources. Space is one of the few places where there is literally uncapped upside. And so I tend to think like, look, I don't understand how any kid that is growing up today or any venture capitalist that is like starting up, how do you like not pay attention to space? It is literally the like largest and most like fastest growing and highest potential TAM market ever invented. I also think there'll be tremendous upheaval in the in, in the lay of the land of companies that exist today in sort of old worlds, pre-space. You know, so, so I think telecom. If you add up uh, the top ten telecom companies in the world today, AT and T, Verizon, Vodafone, Orange, China Telecom, it's about a trillion dollars. Just the top ten. These companies will go through immense shakeouts. Some of them will cease to exist. Some will be acquired, and others will have to acquire some of these space companies that are coming along because, you know, effectively, you know, people have limited dollars to spend. Um, if they're not spending it with, you know, an existing company today, they're spending it with, you know, with someone new. And so um, there's going to be some major changes in the world as we know it, uh, of the commercial world as we know it today. I mean, actually, it's not unlike the cell phone market. If you look at the top five cellular companies five years ago, 10 years ago, you know, companies like uh, Ericsson, you know, Motorola were, were features, um, and today it's totally different cast of characters. So it's, yeah. It took about 15 years from like the dot com boom to uh, eventually all the like most valuable companies on earth, all being tech companies. Uh, we're at roughly, I would say, the dot com moment for space. In about 15 years, all of the most valuable companies on earth are going to have some relation to space. Remember Amazon? It took them 10 years. It took, I think they were the last of the first dot comers to, to turn a profit. Um, and now they're, yeah, just to, uh, go off the rails for a second. When are we going to be living in space and will there be sort of a great colonization war? And how do you see that playing out? Predictions. Um, I never like predictions, but I, I will say living in space, I think we're not very far. 
is it five years now? Living I, in space, five years. Did you say you said living in space, yeah. right? I, I don't think it's. I think five years is too soon. I think um, I would say somewhere between ten, twenty, ten and twenty, maybe maybe fifteen ish. I think that you will have the first few people. I mean, we sort of, kind of do with the, with the space stations. People spending months, maybe you know. Uh, I think the record is over a year. Living in space, I, I would say, you know, within the next generation, fifteen to twenty years. Yeah, I may be more aggressive. I would say, like, I think by twenty twenty five, you'll have oh, wow. a thousand people that are consistently. With, and again, living, I think, is difficult because, like, are the people on the ISS living there? So what's the definition of living? There? What's the definition? But I'd say a thousand people continuously, like, at, in one moment, there will be a thousand people. Basically when do we become a multiplanetary species? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, like Mars Colony, that's actually like you know self-driving doesn't require like you know regular shipments from Earth. That still pretty far away. Supply though. chain from Earth. <laughs> so um, twenty forty-five maybe is probably the area. That... Wow. So we're twenty nineteen. So okay, so twenty-five. We don't foresee a great like war over like. I think there will be. We are. We can be bad. We we can be a bad species. I think there will eventually be problems, but not right now. Yeah. Um, All I'll say is, for the longest time, my life goal has always been to become the space Putin. Uh, <laughs> and uh, that is so funny. I uh, I told this to my girlfriend on like our space second date or something Putin. like that. And she's like, you know, I really have a huge crush on Putin, but like, I need you to explain like what the fuck space Putin means. And I start explaining, and I'm like, look, I mean, in all of, like, human history, anytime there's been a small society, like, isolated from the rest of society, typically the small society has been in a very totalitarian regime. And so they, like, you know, the early, the early, you know, extraterrestrial societies are going to look like military regimes with a dictator, effectively. And I'm very skeptical that it's going to look like... And you like want to be that dictator. I mean, someone's got to so, do it. Somebody's got to do it. My goal is for that to be me. And so saying that publicly. On that note, uh, my guests today have been Delian Asparov at Founders Fund and Felix E. Jackham at uh, Akash Systems. Uh, Felix, Delian, thank you so much for a wonderful podcast. Thank you. Thank you. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. 